Well, good morning, all of you. It's good to have you here, and if you're visiting with us, we're thrilled that you're joining us. I don't know about you, I don't look at social media a lot, but I was able to see it enough to see that half our congregation is in Hawaii or something this week. I don't know, there are uh, all these pictures of people on the beach and going on cruises and everything else. I'm kind of like, well, have fun, we'll do our thing, and I get to go at the end of March, I guess, to go see some sunny skies and that kind of thing. Uh, one thing I want to mention just before I jump into the text, I um, want to encourage you this Tuesday, uh, Ross and Enchin, who are in South Africa, go see the consulate about getting their uh, visa squared away. We assume that's going to be a rubber stamp, but uh, so probably Monday night, probably when you're going to bed about 10 or 11, uh, they should be sitting in the consulate office trying to figure that out. So when we get up on Tuesday morning, our time, uh, we should know everything that's going on and whether they're on our way. So if you happen to remember that, I'd encourage you just to be praying for them as they jump through this last hoop. Then they have to give their workplaces 30 days notice and we're still anticipating they're coming in April. If you haven't uh, jumped online and helped begin to fund, furnish their home and that kind of thing, I wanna encourage you to also uh, take some time to do that. We wanna have it all prepared for when they come and uh, maybe you'll have a little more energy when we get past Tuesday and we'll come back and say, yep, they're on their way, they're gonna be here, but uh, we'd appreciate your participation in that as well. So I'm gonna invite you just to bow with me as we pray and step into his presence this morning uh, through prayer. Father, we just come before you again. What an incredible privilege it is to call you Father, to know that we can come with confidence and boldness before your throne of grace, not because of any merits in and of ourselves, but because of the work of your Son. And we draw close to you because of the shed blood of Christ and that he has torn open the veil so that we can come freely before your presence and we have no other mediator that we need. Uh, we don't need other people, we don't need a religious system. You have given all those who've become children of God this free access into your very presence that we might hear your voice and humble ourselves before you and know the mind of Christ as we live life. Father, help us never to take that for granted. Um, help us to revalue that every single day and know the privilege that we have to talk to the creator of the universe. Uh, we bow before you this morning because we know that in this incredibly hectic pace of life that most of us are on, it's so critically important that we kind of pause and find a little bit of rest for our soul and allow us, your spirit, to help realign our spiritual mindset to Christ and to eternal things. And so we pray that you will do that this morning. May you continue to teach us from your word, not just more information, but things that need to alter our values and our beliefs and our priorities and our behaviors. And so we trust you for that this morning as we present ourselves to you and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. I was uh, flipping through uh, some history of Minnesota and I was trying to find, as it were, local heroes, uh, individuals that were actually came from here. I've noticed that in some of my research that Minnesota has 17 different, at least 17 individuals who have gone to the Olympics. Uh, I didn't list them all, but there is uh, Lara Dahlman Weiss who is uh, from Shoreview, Minnesota. She was in sailing. This was actually identified the article I found was back in August 2021, so we've had a couple of years go by. Uh, Mason Fairleck, who was from Roseville, was in track and field, the men's 3,000 uh, men's steeplechase. 
Suni Lee is probably the one that we're most familiar with. She was uh, the little gal from St. Paul who uh, competed in the Olympics and was, uh, won her fair share of awards, uh, especially in, um, in women's gymnastics. I think it was the uneven bars or something, but uh, she's from our own neighborhood. Um, another individual, Gable uh, Stevenson, was men's wrestling which of course reminded me of our own Jason Close who almost went to the Olympics but had his uh, shoulder ripped out by some giant monster who wanted to get there before him. So um, it it has its casualties. I was looking at professional uh, athletes that are from Minnesota. Uh, Kevin McHale uh, from Hibbling, who's a professional basketball player. Uh, Patty Berg, who was from Minneapolis. She was on the LPGA long before most of you were alive, back in 1946. Um, Paul Molitor is somebody who's a little more familiar to you who played baseball and uh, helped actually coach the Twins, uh, try to get them past wherever they're at, um, as successful as it was. Herb Brooks, of course, is kind of the infamous coach who did the miracle on ice, taking college students and defeating the juggernaut Soviets uh, way back in terms of uh, the Olympics. Uh, Tom Lehman, of course, I'd recognize as a PGA golfer who uh, had his accolades and things that he did as well. You know, you have a a huge list of famous other people. Uh, Bob Dylan, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Paul Getty, Judy Garland, Humphrey, uh, probably Herbert Humphreys, John Madden, Charles Schultz, and of course, Jesse Ventura. Well, I knew I was going to get some kind of reaction to that. <laughs> he was, uh, of course, he was a Navy SEAL, came back, was in the wrestling world, uh, ended up in the film industry, and then, much to the shock and awe of most political establishments, beat uh, Hubert Humphrey in the race for Minnesota governor back in 1998, which you have your own feelings about that. I wasn't around at that particular time. You know, I don't know about you, but there's, uh, we have people that come from our areas and our communities that either become heroes or they become villains to us. They either are people that we want to celebrate and emulate or they're individuals who we just assume put under the table and not admit that they actually came from our home places. It's interesting in the text that we want to deal with that Jesus faced a similar kind of scenario. And yet it was not one that went over favorably even for Jesus who is the Son of God. The text we're in this morning is Mark chapter 6 and I want to read through the first several verses to help paint the picture of the thoughts that I want to share with you from the text as we look at this morning the power of unbelief. And uh, we always talk about our faith and how significant that is in life and how necessary it is for us in our walk with God but this kind of flips the script a little bit and talks to us a little bit about how powerful unbelief can be in terms of not only the world, but possibly as the disciples were confronted with it, what it means for their own life. Starting in verse one, it says this, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, which of course is Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simeon, or Simon? Are not these his sisters that are with us? 
and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages continuing to teach. You know, I I don't know about you, but there's really two simple frameworks that I want to walk you through here is one is that these people, as they heard him teaching in the, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, how astonished they were with him. I mean, he's, he's kind of like a prodigy in every sense of the word, and we'll look at that a, a little bit, but they were sort of flabbergasted by his knowledge and his wisdom and the things that he could do. But before things even unravel very far, they're suddenly not only appall, uh, astounded by him, but then suddenly it switched to them being appalled by him that they are literally offended on the deepest level you possibly can, and we'll explore that a little bit, all in the same kind of context. And it's amazing how they go from astonishment to almost anger, and how it tells us sometimes how fickle our own heart is and how difficult it is for us to really trust and respond to Jesus in the way we want to. The idea of being astonished literally has about it as being almost speechless, being so overwhelmed by the reality of what's going on. Uh, you, you experience that sometimes. I've uh, watched different shows. You've got America's Got Talent, and you've got people that are on shows that do phenomenal kinds of activities and events. Uh, I've watched Steve Harvey once in a while have these little tiny kids, you know, five years old and eight years old, who... Uh, know the dictionary in and out. They know words they can't do. You get kids on these spelling bees that can spell words that we've never even heard of before. And so as we look at those kinds of experiences, we stand back and we're somewhat amazed by the talent and the abilities of certain people. They just seem to stand heads and tails above others. And as they're listening to Jesus teach, they're mesmerized by the power of his knowledge and his wisdom and his works that he's been doing. And so in in the moment that we deal with, I want to sort of unpack this a little bit so that you see how this goes from astonishment to anger, from being absolutely memorized by Jesus, mesmerized by Jesus, to this idea of hating him and responding negatively. And I will suggest to you that we can face that same kind of problem as we live in the world where people may be astonished, impressed with Jesus and at the same time flip the switch in a moment and be horribly angry at us because of the message that the gospel of Jesus brings. There are three things that I want you to notice in terms of their astonishment. First, their connection with Jesus, their curiosity, and then their confusion as they try to figure out how they're supposed to respond to this person, Jesus. The first thing I want you to notice is their connection is that this is Jesus' hometown. Now, it may go without saying, but you have to remember that this is in a sense where he grew up. He ran around with all the other kids. Uh, We don't see this part in the scriptures, but he was a kid who grew up in this community. After his parents got back from their exile in Egypt, they planted themselves in Nazareth and it fulfilled certain aspects of God's prophetic word. But he grew up in here and he built friendships and the family got built into the community and they knew who he was. As you can see here, there, and I think the scriptures are pretty clear about it, but there are some people depending on your background. He obviously had brothers and sisters that he ran around and did things with. And so he had all the sibling activity and 
comparison and things that happened to go on there. Of course, he had a bit of an advantage on the rest of his brothers and sisters, as we'll see. But he comes back to this hometown, and he's coming as an adult with a message that they need to hear. It's going to be consistent with what we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus went about preaching the Gospel, calling people to repentance. And now he's taking it back to his home community. Which, if you don't get the feel for that context, you don't realize maybe how much difficult this is going to be. The disciples, of course, are following him, but Jesus will either become the hero who they celebrate or the villain that they hate. As he steps back into people that knew him and grew up with him, that's the connection that we need to understand in the context that they're talking about. The second element is that he's teaching on the Sabbath. Sabbath was a day that was set aside where the Pharisees and scribes would come and the Jews would come together and they would learn from God's law. They would teach and communicate the truths of it and what it meant in terms of living life. And so Jesus is given the privilege in the Sabbath to come in and, as it were, be a guest speaker. He's going to teach, but they're familiar with him. They know him because he grew up in this environment. And Mary and Joseph were people that were deeply committed to their faith. And so this would have been common territory for him, but Jesus now comes back as a teacher, not as a learner. And so he steps into this environment and he's giving in religious instruction, likely very in keeping with the law, very much in keeping with the message of the gospel and this call to repentance. But, and he does it in the synagogue. He's taking the, the formal posture of a context in which that's what people would be familiar with to communicate his ideas and his teaching that he had. It was, he was in the right place, he was in the right time, he was in the, the right context, and these are the people that should know him well enough that they ought to welcome him with open arms. But I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and then left home, uh, I had people, you know, when you go back and talk to people, you know, it's like high school reunions. I don't know if you're into that or not, but if you've ever gone back to a high school or school reunion, you get back there and of course everybody looks different. You can hardly even recognize some of them because they look so different and they start talking about what they've done with their life and they start interacting about here's where my journey went and here's my occupation and I have a family and it's, it's weird to see people that you haven't seen for years and all these changes in their life and it's both remarkable and sometimes it's astounding Sometimes it's even sad because some people just haven't made much of their life and it's a difficult journey. But Jesus goes back into this context and he's different in some respects than what he was. Although in many ways he's exactly who he's always been as the son of God clothed in flesh and blood. But as he, as he goes in here, you'll notice that their curiosity is driven and I'll call it, for lack of better terms, for the information that he knows or the information they have about Jesus. There's three things that they seem astounded by as they talk. First is his knowledge and his insight. It says, like, where did he get this stuff? He, was, he was an individual who they knew didn't go through the formal rabbinical training and got all this religious education. He was, we'll talk about later, a carpenter. And so he's got knowledge that you wouldn't expect for him to have. He's got insights and wisdom when he's talking about the law and talking about relationship with God that seems extraordinarily different from the Pharisees and the scribes and yet has profound impact because it's making sense to some of them. 
And, and they're standing back in awe of, wait a minute, this is little Jesus who was running around, right? What happened to him? Where did he get all this? I mean, I didn't know he went off to Purdue University and got a degree. I, we didn't know he was doing that. We thought he was a carpenter. Where did he get this kind of education and this insight? He's the individual that has wisdom. So it's not just head knowledge and truth, but he knows how to communicate in such a way that lands right in the lap of real life for most people. And he's saying, listen, this is how this truth has to be lived out. And yet as he's teaching this, there's going to be a rub against the current religious flow of life that he's going to sound and teach differently than the Pharisees and the scribes. He's going to communicate truth in a much more powerful and relevant way. And so they are astounded by not only what he says and the knowledge he has and the wisdom he has, because they can't figure out where it came from, but also his works. He seems to have the power to heal people, and his reputation has spread throughout that community. And I suspect that for the most part, as they're hearing this, it's like, okay, this is Jesus, right? Is this the same one that grew up here? Because I don't remember him this way. He was a carpenter. What's he doing all this stuff? And when he shows up, I suspect there was a bit of a parade. There's individuals who are like, is that the same Jesus? He doesn't look the same. Is this really him? And they're enamored and astounded by who Jesus is, but Unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. By the way, let me take a short scenic journey here. The reason they're astounded shouldn't surprise us. If you remember Luke chapter 2, verse 46, and following, you'll remember when uh, Mary and Joseph took their family to Passover, Luke chapter 2, verse 41, he was uh, with them, and they were there for the Passover ceremony, then they took off, and they thought, well, he's just with his friends messing around. They get out a day's journey, as it were, and they suddenly realize that he's not around. And he's only 12 years old, so they go obviously hunting for him and can't find him, come back into Jerusalem, and the text says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard them were amazed. They were astounded that this 12-year-old had his understanding and the answers that he gave. So at 12 years old, he's a child prodigy. He staggers the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're like, how does this kid know all this stuff? Now, we know in a sense it's possible because we've watched the Steve Harvey shows and the five-year-olds and the eight-year-olds that know the dictionary inside and out, and they have special skills playing the piano, and they never learned anything, but they just kick off classical music because it's something they want to do. And so it's not totally out of the realm of possibility. But even when his parents see him, they were astonished. Exactly the same word that's used in the text in Mark chapter 6. They're astonished. So the word doesn't mean something negative necessarily, but they're just overwhelmed with who this person is. They're larger than life. They have abilities that stand head and shoulders above the people around them. And they're just amazed at what he knows. Now, if he was this good at 12 years old, just think of the man, Jesus, coming into the temple and into the synagogue and teaching stuff that's so far beyond even the remotest, wildest speculations of the Pharisees and scribes that he's literally just dumbfounding them with his knowledge. And so 
Then they get through this, and I want you to notice the curiosity they have about Jesus, because there's three other questions that come up. It's not just about his knowledge and his wisdom and the works that he does, which is the information they know about him, but the second set is really about his identity. There's three things that he asks. First of all, they say, and it's not really necessarily a question, but he says, isn't this the carpenter? And it's got an article to it, so it's not just he did carpentry work, but this guy, this is what he learned to do is carpentry. He was a tradesman. Undoubtedly learned it from his dad, but it's possible there was other people involved, but that's what they did. Their, whatever their dad was in terms of their trade and their abilities, that's what they often taught their sons, is they taught them a trade so that they could operate and survive in the community and earn a living. So he's the carpenter. Now, how does the carpenter go to a, being a master teacher? I didn't know he went to school. I don't know where he got this training, and yet he's brilliant beyond his years. And so he's a carpenter. This doesn't seem to match, because we saw him grow up in this environment, and we understand what he grew up with. I don't know about you, but sometimes the idea of our profession defines us, doesn't it? Uh, you, if you grow up and didn't do very well at school, well, there's sort of this impression, I didn't like to learn that way, so I like to learn with my hands, so I go into trade schools. And sometimes people would have a bit of a stereotype of you taking that kind of track. Oh, well, tradespeople, super skilled with their hands and whatever, they're not going to be the white-collared scientists. And we kind of conclude that they have a certain skill set that that it's going to fit this kind of mode of existence and occupation over here, but we don't expect them to be a scientist. I mean, that's kind of like Jesus. We know you're a carpenter. How did you get to be a master teacher? That doesn't fit. Where did you get this stuff? How is it that you have these kinds of insight? I don't know about you. When I was in my teen years, they had... Uh, the golden parachute stuff. It was basically tests that they took to find out what you would be best suited for when you were growing up. I think I sort of thought it was helpful and hated it all at the same time. The problem is, is that I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So if I could get some help with that, that would be great. And that was kind of the point of those particular kinds of tests and surveys and assessments that they gave you. They still have them around. Everybody sort of has them out there. They have all kinds of different things that they can try to help you figure out what you do best. The problem that I didn't like about it is that it would have a tendency to pigeonhole you. Well, you're only going to be good at this kind of stuff, and that's going to be it. You know, you might make a good bus driver or mechanic, but if you want to be a professor in a high... You don't fit the profile. You don't have the aptitude. You don't have the intuitive knowledge. You don't, have the, you don't think that way. And so the danger with some of this process of him going back to his home community is that they go and like, well, listen, you're a trades guy. What's going on with this being a master teacher? I don't know if you ever felt stereotyped, but that's a lot of what we often feel when we're growing up. It's more difficult when our parents say, hey, you know, the, these dreams you have of being an astronaut or a scientist, or what, yeah, that sounds good, but I don't think you're going to make it. And sometimes our own families can stereotype us and demolish our dreams when we think that we want to become something and we've got lots of people around us, usually our family, that says, look, 
you're just dreaming. You gotta be realistic. You wanna go into that kind of educational track, but you gotta remember that you can't make a living at that stuff. You gotta do something that's more realistic. You ever had those kind of conversations with your family? Hey, I wanna, I wanna go to art school. Uh, yeah, but art doesn't, art's not gonna make a living for you. I wanna be a musician. And some parents go, well, you can't, you can't make a living doing that. You gotta get a real job. You ever felt that? And so the issue that Jesus is dealing with is like, dude, you're a carpenter. Like, what are you trying to pull off here? And there's something that begins to shift when they move from being astounded by what he knows and what he's done and his wisdom to all of a sudden backtracking this into, well, wait a minute, this guy's just a carpenter. Like, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. And it's so easy for people to stereotype us based on our occupation. And they think that all that I can be and do is be this person who has this occupation or this trade or this skill set. And in a sense, it's very easy, even in ourselves, to say this is all that I'm going to be. And Jesus kind of dumbfounds him and he astonishes him, but it creates this kind of discontinuity in his own life, in their, in their thinking, because they're kind of like, he's trying to be something that he can't be because he's just a carpenter. My uh, dad did not want me going to Bible college. Because in the 70s, when I was going up through school, that was, the, that was the season or the phase of Christianity that was the Jesus people. You know, grow your hair long, hang out together, stand on the streets and beg for money so that they could support their cause. And my dad's idea of me going to Bible college is that, hey, you're, you're going to be one of these, in his language, not mine, you're going to be one of these Jesus freaks that's basically a leech on society and doing nothing profitable. You can't make a living doing that. Get a real job. So out of an attempt to honor my dad, I went to a trade school. I went to Southern Alberta Institute of Technology and I took civil engineering because it was, to me, really fascinating, but my greatest struggle was math. <laughs> but I loved learning about it and just the idea of surveying and landing and developing maps, uh, building construction, all those kind of things were fascinating to me, but it wasn't sort of where my heart was. And I got a certificate, even interviewed with some companies about getting a job, and those kind of fell flat. I think they sensed that my heart wasn't in it. So I finally went back to my dad, and I'm kind of like, Dad. And I had to do some prep with Mom on this one because I knew what was coming. And I said, Dad, I just, I got to go to Bible college. That's where God, I, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but that's where I want to go. First thing out of his mouth is, well, you can do what you want, but I'm not supporting you. I'm not giving you any money to go to some Bible college. You need a real job. You need to get something that's going to pay the bills, not go to some fluffy Jesus freak stuff that you can't make a living off of. And so my dad had his own stereotype about what he thought was realistic for me to grow up and do. I think he meant well, but he sure sucked the wind out of my sails. 
And I don't know what your experience in life is, but a lot of us have grown up where we wanted, had dreams of doing something, and parents are the first one to give us a reality check about, hey, that's not going to happen. And we all mean well, but we don't all always understand the collateral damage that creates in our heart because we've already made up our mind that you've only got the skill set to do this, and that's it. The bigger danger is not whether they say it, it's whether you believe it or not. And some of us have limited our life to a certain pathway of life because we have believed that you're not capable of doing anything worthwhile above what we've concluded you should do. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is facing here, is that people are going like, well, this guy's just the carpenter. This doesn't make sense here. How does it he rises above being a simple carpenter to have this kind of astounding information and wisdom? And as I move through this, I just want to remind you that sometimes, whether it's said by our parents or maybe our siblings or our friends or maybe it was some assessment you took in high school or college, that God doesn't, isn't limited to defining our life by what other people think. That we're not limited to simply relegating our sense of value to a certain trade or a skill or a certain occupation. But Jesus is sort of the perfect example that when we trust Christ, it really doesn't matter what the job is, we can rise up above the circumstances of life because we know Jesus and we know God's word, this divinely given revelation to help us see eternal things, not just the temporal practical realities of life. And so this carpenter facing this stereotypical caricature of what they think about him is what comes up when he starts being a teacher. The second element was his parents. Is this not the son of Mary? Now, if you come from a Catholic background, you're going to discover as we move through this that this is going to probably create some tension in your thinking. You'll notice in this text that Mary's the only one that mentions. Joseph is not mentioned. When, if you go back to Luke chapter 2 and talk about them going to Passover, it tells us explicitly that Mary and Joseph took their family regularly to Passover. The fact that Joseph isn't mentioned is uh, speculative. Most commentators will assume that maybe he's, already, he's passed away, that he got killed or died somewhere in this journey, and he's no longer there. Because basically, if you follow the text and believe it in the normal way that it means, basically the whole family is mentioned except for Joseph. Now, I don't know how you thought about this, but one of the things is, well, she's a single mom trying to raise a kid. It's very possible that reality kicked in. We don't know what age it would be. Now, some have speculated maybe they got divorced. We don't know that. Everything's speculative, but it's interesting that Mary's the only one mentioned here, and it would be very possible that she was, at some point, a single mom raising her kids. Now, we also have to remember that if it's in that community, we also may remember that if you go back to the story, we understand that it looked like she committed adultery before they came together as husband and wife. Now, they're living in a different spot, but you know how good news spreads and how gossip spreads even more. 
it's possible that, hey, <laughs> this is his mother, Mary. And then it goes on and identifies family members, siblings. And there's a whole clutter of little brothers and sisters in here that you and I probably didn't know about or didn't even pay attention to. And as I said, if you come from a Catholic church, the protection of Mary as a virgin her entire life would interpret this particular text as saying, well, this is just metaphorical expressions. It's like a normal community where you're calling people who are absolutely like godparents or close to your family, you would call them aunt and uncle and those kinds of things. And that's certainly a possibility of the language that's here. I could call all of you my brothers and sisters, maybe to your distress, it might be an honor for me, but you know, we, we can use language like that and say, hey, we're part of the same family. And so that's usually the track that some commentators will go with to say, well, this isn't his real mother, it's a different Mary. His brothers and sisters might be cousins and other individuals just referred to as brothers and sisters. I think that's a stretch because of the nature of this whole thing and when Jesus responds to it, he's gonna say, listen, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and with his relatives and his own household. Now, we don't know for sure all the details, but apparently, I think Jesus, and if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you do the same thing. Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. I'm convinced that they probably had kids, and I think this is the record that demonstrates it. Uh, we have no idea where Joseph is in the picture, but if he's passed away, here's a mom who's raising some of these kids well, all these kids to some degree, maybe on her own. She's got a mitful. But it would be easy for them to say, oh yeah, well, they're part of that family. They've had their issues. So there's no way that Jesus had the money, the education, the training, the opportunity to become a master teacher. So, I mean, because look at their family. They're carpenters, they're tradespeople. And the danger for many of us is that sometimes we run into this problem where we get stereotyped because of the families we grew up in. Oh, that family, we know, yeah, we know what they're like. They have a certain culture and a certain value system. They do certain things in certain ways. How could Jesus get above their family culture? How can he rise above what's going on there? They're, they're tradespeople. How does he become a teacher? Now, I've run into people sometimes who are embarrassed about their own family because they're not very healthy. And they just as soon disassociate with their family because they feel the pressure of them being broken and dysfunctional and unhealthy and I don't want to be associated with that. And they, well, I, I know people that spend their whole life trying to break the culture of their family that they grew up in because it's toxic and it's dysfunctional and it's devastating. And the thing that I grew up with is I'll never amount to anything because of the family that I've got. And you can tell there's a certain hostility to this because when they're finished, they're gonna say they're offended by Jesus, why? Well, it's not just because he's, they're astounded by all the information that he knows in his wisdom, but now they're falling back to, look at his family. Look what he came from. 
And I'm telling you, I bet you if I went through this room and had discussions with you, you'd all have stories about your family, some of them maybe not so pleasant. And sometimes it's easy for us to come to the conclusion that the reason I have so many problems in my life and the reason that I haven't reached my dreams and goals is because of my dysfunctional family. And God, why did you have to bring me into this world through this family? Because it's created so many problems in my life. I didn't get the opportunities. We didn't have the resources. It wasn't healthy. Now I suspect that this family wasn't quite as dysfunctional. They seemed to fit into the community. But you know, I both know that we grow up in families that sometimes are super difficult and we get stereotyped by people because of the families we grow up in. You know, you get some parents that discipline their kids well. And their kids grow up and they become outstanding citizens. You got other parents that discipline their kids and love them and do everything they can and their kids grow up and they literally go AWOL. They go off the grid and they get into so many things that are dysfunctional. And you have this internal battle as parents is, what did we do wrong? How did we blow this so badly that our kids turned out this way? And so families, we get stereotyped. Even on our own thinking, we start feeling extremely negative and even hostile to our own families because I didn't deserve this. And when it finishes this, and and it basically says they were offended at Jesus, the word there is used for scandal. Because of, they were not only astounded by his knowledge and wisdom and his teaching and his works, but all of a sudden when they start backtracking into his family and, and his parents and his family, all of a sudden now they come out the other end and they're absolutely offended by it. They're angry. It's creating a scandal in their hearts. And this Jesus is going to come back and start telling us how we need to live? That's like the person who's been married three times giving marriage advice to the person who hasn't been married yet. Like, what is this dude coming back in here and telling us how to get right with God? Look at his family. And so they get frustrated with him. And the disgrace is they just basically reject his knowledge. They reject his wisdom and his teaching and what he's done It doesn't matter how hard he tries, he's not going to get accepted by this group. Because they have a ton of suspicion. And the point is, is that it becomes difficult even for Jesus to minister in this context. I mean, literally, it says, because Jesus' ministry was redemptive, it was centered on the gospel, and this is little Jesus who grew up with this and his best friends are looking at him kind of like, dude, where do you come back here telling us we need to get our life organized? I mean, you may know this, probably the hardest people in the world to share the gospel with is your own family if they don't know Jesus. 
Because they have you already figured out and put in a box and stereotype because you're as big a hypocrite as they would ever be. And we're told in this section that Jesus marveled. He's the one now that's astounded and he's marveling at the depth of their unbelief. And because of the scope of their unbelief in this community towards him, because they know him and he grew up there, there's very little that Jesus could do in terms of preaching the gospel or he even says specifically of healing people. He just didn't do much there because there's no... There's no room for belief or faith in any of these people. You know, I've often wondered as I thought through this text that if a church finds itself not experiencing the power of God to do things, I wonder if times that we, in our journey of life, have taken so many hits and we felt like life has been so unfair that it sort of erodes our own faith And we start becoming suspicious and skeptical of whether God's really at work in our life and doing what he should. I I wonder, I, I would like to think that if Jesus showed up here physically, that he would be astounded by our faith and our good works. He wouldn't be amazed at our unbelief. I know churches are dying that are part of our network because they're so busy power struggling and fighting over who's in control internally that they've lost sight of the entire mission of Christ. They're not seeing God work at all in those environments. They're just spending all their time fighting over who gets to control the money and the programming. And the struggle obviously for Jesus is there's very little he could do in in a sense to see people come to respond to his gospel and he healed very few people because there's such a deep level of suspicion and skepticism and unbelief that all he's getting is antagonism and anger. By the way, let me tell you, let me share this with you. People will give you every reason in the world to quit following Jesus to quit volunteering and, and being involved in ministry and service. People will give you all kinds of, why? Because even at times when you circle around Christians, there's some that have developed not a fruitful, thriving, dynamic faith in Jesus, but they become skeptical. And the danger is, is the older we get, the more skeptical we can become. Oh, they have all these ideals as young people. Well, they'll figure it out when the reality really hits the road. I've been fortunate both here and in my last church to be surrounded by older folks that haven't developed a skepticism that's so negative that it basically sucks the life out of living for Jesus. Oh yeah, you gone to Bible college and come back? Yeah, you'll find out that that's just a bubble. That's not real. The real world is where people ignore Jesus and they fight and they quibble over little things. What happens when we run into that level of unbelief, whether it's with people who should have faith or people that are unbelievers, it often has done in many Christians' lives question the message of the gospel and whether I should share it. 
I've seen individual Christians who question their ministry because people aren't responding. They're getting more negativism and criticism and nitpicking at what they're doing rather than people who are hungry to learn from God. I run into people who've questioned their own self-worth in terms of ministry and literally quit because I can't keep putting up with all the negative criticism and complaining that other Christians do. I've seen individuals struggle with their self-worth, their significance, and their idea of success and what it means to be a Christian and live for Jesus. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. He's amazed by their unbelief, and what does he do? He doesn't stick around debating it. He doesn't try to troubleshoot it. He doesn't send them all to counselors. What Jesus does is he goes right to the next city and he keeps teaching and preaching. Because Jesus has a perspective on his life and ministry that's far bigger than the negativity of the people around him. And yet the power of unbelief can squash any of us if we don't have our life deeply rooted in Christ. And sometimes we listen way too much to the negative voices, whether it's from our parents or whether it's from our siblings or from our supposedly best friends who criticize and complain about not only our faith in Jesus, but maybe even how we try to carry out the way we live in ministry. And I want to encourage you this morning that don't allow the power of unbelief in other people's lives destroy your own faith in Jesus. Because people will give you hundreds of reasons to say, I'm done with this. I'm not serving anymore. I'm not going to go hang out with them anymore. I'm not doing any of this anymore. And we literally give so much power to the people that don't have faith that they squelch our faith in Jesus and we end up allowing them to diminish and destroy our own passion for Jesus when we should be so anchored in our identity in Christ that we're willing to say, listen, if these people don't want to respond, I'm going to go to the next town. I'm going to to preach and teach there. I'm going to keep doing what God has called me to do. I'm not going to worry about success. I'm not going to worry about the results. I'm not going to worry about their unbelief. I'm going to keep doing it till I find people who want to know Jesus. We live in that kind of world. Our world is drowning in suspicion and skepticism, in sarcasm, and scandals. Don't let it knock you off course. We believe in Jesus first and foremost. He's the only one who will keep you true. Faithful to him. Faithful in ministry. Faithful to the mission. Faithful to the gospel. Don't let it depend on the attitudes of others. That's what a true servant does in the face and in the power of unbelieving people. Father, You know, we face a flood of unbelief in our world. Whether it comes from the culture, whether it comes even sometimes from family, we may discover, just like Jesus did, that we may have honor in so many different places except with the very people that we would think would be our best supporters. 
And I pray, Father, that we would allow you the spirit of the living God who dwells in those who truly surrender to you through faith in Jesus to rise above the caricature of what people think we ought to be and how we ought to live and what we'll amount to. To rise above that so that we become ambassadors of knowledge and wisdom and truth that's far beyond our years that can transform any life whom the Spirit of God opens to respond by faith. Sometimes our greatest limitations is that we've bought into the negativity and the skepticism that others have told us. We've allowed ourselves to be defeated personally and emotionally and relationally because we've given up. We've, we've allowed ourselves to be pushed into the box that other people have placed us. And I pray that we will allow you to bring a fresh renewal in our heart that in the hands of Jesus we can rise above our families, we can rise above the opinions of others, we can rise above the unbelief that we're faced with every single day to be individuals who communicate the greatest knowledge in all of the universe, and that's the gospel of Jesus. To keep us faithful, living pure and holy lives, being faithful regardless of what anyone else does to live for Christ. Change our hearts. Renew our thoughts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.